Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. It's a pleasure today to have a kindred spirit, Bob Giamanco, who is VP Sales and Marketing for Echo. Bob, would you mind giving the listeners two, three-minute introduction to who you are and what brought you to this point in your career? Thanks, Marcus, and thanks for the invitation to your show. I think what people need to know is I have a love and a passion for selling, and that's been my entire career. I had the pleasure of starting an inside sales for a company. Most people will recognize Ingram Micro. And then I worked for three other fabulous technology companies, the last being Microsoft, where I ran a very large sales business across the United States. From there, I went on to start my own business, which I've been doing for the past 14 years or so, very focused on helping salespeople and sales leaders be the best that they can be. And communication is a huge part of that, which we're going to talk about. And then through a series of serendipitous events, I came to be part of the Echo Listening Intelligence team in April of this year. And I love it because I have a lot of strong opinions and passion, if you will, around the listening side of communication that is what I think to be a big gap. So that's really what people need to know about me. I'm the original social selling gal, wrote a book on it. And so people can look me up and find more. But I think that's a good starting point for us. Your book's in the top 50 sales books of 2019, if I recall correctly. Yes, that was a nice surprise. Top Sales World. By the way, obviously a shout out. Your book was on that list as well. And our good friend, Jonathan Farrington, heads up top sales world. And they really look at books carefully that focus in on supporting sellers and sales leaders. And so it was nice because the book is The New Handshake, Sales Meets Social Media. And though I was a bit ahead of my time and it came out in 2010, still as applicable now as ever. In fact, I sometimes kind of shake my head and think, really? You still don't understand how social media fits selling, but that's a conversation for another day, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) I think actually it makes sense to bring social media into the conversation. Listening to your network and listening to the feedback that you're getting from your content and listening to your audience. So why is it that people just don't listen on social media? They seem to be on broadcast. That's a great question. I think what it is, Marcus, is first of all, I want to recognize and say that I empathize with individual sales contributors who have managers breathing down their neck with this what I consider to be an over-focus on activity. Make more calls, send more emails. Oh, how about send more LinkedIn in-mails? Oh, just connect with a few more people on LinkedIn. So there's this more activity, which seems to go into overdrive when there are revenue challenges. And more isn't better if it isn't the right quality. So I think a couple things with respect to your question. One, people are not really taught which is why I have done so well in my business. I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of sellers on how to learn to engage with people in the right way on social media. They're not taught how to do it. And I think they just see it as another broadcast channel and they're looking for some sort of a shortcut without understanding that, first of all, there are no shortcuts, but secondarily, spam on social media is as bad as spam on email or spam over the phone. So once again, it's this activity, but people are not looking at the quality of the activity and listening is part of that. So when we say listening in social media, that's really kind of paying attention to what the buyer you're trying to get in front of cares about. And therein lies the problem. 
most people do not take the time to figure out what's important to the person on the other side of the table. Incredibly important point. I have a view that you listen your way to a sale and you talk your way out of it. So the key question here is, why is it that people don't listen more effectively? I don't know until I met Dana Dupuis, who's our CEO, that I thought a lot about that question, but I certainly do now. I think, Marcus, what it is, is a lot of people assume that we all know how to listen because our ears function and we hear sounds. What I learned from Dana well over a year ago is that listening, as it turns out, is cognitive. It's a brain function. What that means is that we can learn about our natural and dominant habits. We can learn where we have biases. We can also make choices to adjust. If you think about the millions of dollars, we're here talking about sales. If you think about the millions of dollars invested in training and development and how much money goes into communication, a lot of money goes into the talking side, just like you said, right? And now the thing over the last couple of years is, oh, the discovery questions in which, let's face it, buyers feel like they're being interrogated. So what most people know about listening is active listening, which is very, it was great at the time, but it doesn't really serve much of a purpose now. Most people think of active listening as, oh, I'm in a meeting with Marcus. I'll just repeat back what he says. I'll mirror his body language. Well, most people are wise to that. That's not truly listening. So It's not authentic. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I want to say that I heard your CEO, Dave Matson say something to the effect of, it almost feels like people are parroting yeah. what you're doing. And a buyer picks up on that. I'd love to dig into that a little more fully. I think that's a big problem in sales today. We don't have a lot of authenticity. Everybody's so selfishly focused on their quota. And when I say that, that doesn't mean that I don't live by, I have a quota, I'm in sales, I need to make sales, but I'm considering the people side of it first and what's important to the other person first. Well, you've touched on a really important point. And I always make this point when I'm training that you need to start with the right intent if your intent is to take their money and help yourself move towards your quota, then that's selfish. It's eye-centered selling. If your intent is to establish, can I help? Do these people need my help? Are we a good fit for one another? Is it appropriate for us to do business? Then we can actually focus on the right end of the problem, which is understanding them. One of my mentors is a chap called Mark Goulston. And Mark talks about human beings' number one driver being to be heard, to feel felt, and feel understood. And you can't possibly understand or learn about somebody else when your lips are moving. Just doesn't make any sense. And so you find this in management where employees are not engaged. Customers don't feel appreciated, so they leave. So you end up creating a problem for yourself because you have churn in your workforce and you also have churn in your customer base. So you spend a fortune trying to attract and win new customers. And then you let them go out of the back door because they don't feel appreciated or understood. So how come, given that we see this pattern of behavior happening repeatedly throughout organizations across history, and it's not like it's new, why haven't we learned? Are we that stupid as a species? You know, that is such a great question because I actually posted 
something on LinkedIn again. My personal belief, Marcus, is that if we could solve one big problem in sales, it would be communication. It would be helping people to understand they need to get outside their own agenda and really genuinely care about doing right by the other person. I'm known for saying hashtag give first. When people hear that, sometimes what they hear that and they think, oh, but what Barb is saying is that develop a relationship, but let it take forever to close business. No, actually the reverse is true to your point. And look, this isn't just coming from us. This is coming from the greats like Napoleon Hill and Dale Carnegie and so many others that said, you know, when people feel like you've really spent the time focused on them, they want to do business with you. When you make that connection with them, they want to do business with you. Then again, this isn't anything that happens naturally. And if you think about how many young, less experienced sellers are coming into the workforce into inside sales roles, and they're the first first touch with potential customers, who's training them how to communicate well? They're being taught to do demos. They're being taught to talk. They're being taught to ask questions. They really don't know how to listen to the answers, but more importantly, they don't even know how to adapt to what they're hearing. I think you called it happy ears before we got started. They just, they're listening, not really, but they're listening for what they want to hear, not what's really being said. And that's not so much as a criticism as in, we mostly are not taught how to listen in a way that's effective for both parties. This comes down to, Another really important point that builds on that authenticity piece, which is I don't believe people have to like me to buy from me, but they absolutely have to trust me. They have yes. to like me later. And listening is about building trust. We both work within the channel. And in channel, you have no power. I think even in direct sales, you have the illusion of power, but you have at least a modicum of control. But within the channel, the only things you have as your currency are influence and trust. And that comes from attention. A good friend of mine, Ron Vokorais, came up with this wonderful concept that attention is a currency. You pay attention. And you need to build an emotional bank account based on the attention that you pay to other people. And you can't possibly diagnose their problem if you're talking and you're trying to get through your demo and you're doing the demo prematurely. So the real challenge here, I believe, is that people don't really learn how to communicate effectively throughout school and their early years. And when they get into a position where they are in sales or in chat, then what they tend to do is they do what was done to them. And so one of my favorite poems is This Be the Verse by Philip Larkin. And the third verse says, man, deep their hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. He's talking about the human condition where we reinforce the things that we've learned, even though we may realize that they're not good for us, but they've become habituated. So what are good listening habits? I know you guys are really strong on that. So talk to me about how you develop and diagnose great listening habits within your people and within yourself. Absolutely. So what I want to touch on with respect to your point that you just made is, you know, yes, the question kind of jokingly, you know, are we just stupid that we're not changing in the face of all the evidence that sort of this old fashioned way of I'm just going to keep talking at you and like wear you down and maybe eventually you'll buy from me. Or if I just talk to enough breathing people who are breathing, 
eventually I'm going to get where I need to go. I think it's just what you said, Marcus, that people are, they naturally are just going to resist change because it is hard to refute the evidence. CSO Insight said, again, last year, you know, 50% of sales teams not making quota. That's because people keep doing the same things over and over again, expecting a different sort of a result. So when I think about that communication, what I want people to know about listening and what we do at Echo Listening Intelligence, we have the only cognitive-based, very solidly research-backed profile. So you can actually take an assessment to first learn about your own habits. And there are four sort of dominant habit buckets, if you will. And then there are nuances within those categories. But that's where it starts. If you don't have more self-awareness about yourself, and this is why people are very probably used to understand, you know, emotional intelligence, or they could, maybe they've been through a DISC assessment, or perhaps it's Myers-Briggs. But if you don't know yourself first, then it's going to be very difficult for you to be able to better understand other people and learn to adapt. So our profile helps you first look at yourself. Once you gain an understanding of the areas that you are naturally dominant in, we also help you understand where you have natural biases. And let's face it, we all do. I'll use myself as a perfect example. My natural bias is to tune out too much spreadsheet detail. So, right, I'm not, I am not the person you want sitting in a long financial discussion. If I'm lucky, I can make it 15 minutes. That's just because that's just not me naturally. And by the way, that comes across whether it's Myers-Briggs for personality or DISC for behavior. It turns out that while there's not solid research that ties these together. Anecdotally, we can see that listening actually is similar to our behavior and our personality. Again, not research-based, but I've seen that even in my own approach. So that's what the profile does. It helps people to first understand themselves, where they're strong, where they may have biases. And then we focus a lot on helping individuals and teams understand how that plays out in a not just in a group setting internally, but also how does that play out when you're working with customers, whether in the sales world, you're on the direct selling side or you're on the channel side. So that's what it's all about. And we really give you some strategies for what to do once you know about yourself and others. I took the test and I have to say, I found it depressingly accurate. So haven't seen it before, then contact Echo. Bob, how can people get in touch with Echo? Well, they can find us on the web, certainly at echolistening.com. I'd love to have a conversation. They're certainly welcome to email me at barb at echolistening.com and I'll talk with you more about it. The other thing, Marcus, I want people to understand is that as we talk about listening, I think sometimes people think it's one of those fluffy things like a nice to have. Actually, companies are losing millions and millions of dollars in various ways, lost sales, we are talking about sales here, lost sales, they're losing it in employee engagement, they're doing a poor job recruiting the right people and onboarding them correctly. Listening costs businesses big dollars. And when you make the investment to improve listening inside your organization, that has equally powerful revenue implications that people ought to be thinking about. You've touched on such an important point here with respect to your staff. 
if your people don't feel like they're being heard, if they don't feel like their voice is important, they will be disengaged. And typically, people don't leave their job, they leave their boss. So one of the most important aspects that we build into our training, and we're seeing the massive positive impact, is teaching managers how to listen effectively and understand their individual and prospective employees' motivations and drivers so that they can create a tailored onboarding process. And that's where you set salespeople up to succeed or fail, that first 120 days. I wrote a post on LinkedIn a couple of years ago on how to turn an A player into a B player inside four weeks. And <laughs> it's really not difficult to do. All you have to do is put your A player in the office with all of your mediocre and weak salespeople and have them surrounded by all the dross and drivel and make sure that they don't have the resources that they need in order to hit their objectives. So very quickly, they become disengaged. And in that first 120 days, they are thinking, is my boss an oath? Do I like this job? Do I like the people I'm working with? Is this the job I was sold? Can I do it? And so in onboarding, there are three simple questions that every manager needs to be able to answer well. What does the new employee need to do uh, know? By when do they need to know it? And where can they find the information they need in order to be able to do it? And to build an onboarding process day by day, even with veterans and even with executives, to make sure you set them up to succeed. But in order to do that, you actually have to ask the right questions and listen. So I know that you guys have produced a very interesting infographic where you talk about the average small to medium-sized business wasting 17 and a half hours per week in just clarifying miscommunications. Yes. And think about what that costs money-wise. Think about what that does to just normal productivity. Forget that companies are striving to be more innovative and you know they're wasting all this time in meetings re-clarifying over and over again what somebody meant. And that just, to me, is kind of criminal. Isn't it just? It really is. And then I, I wanted to also build on what you said about the A players versus the B players. And by the way, I have said this before. I'm going to say it again. If you've got C players, move them along. It's going to be very difficult. Based on my own experience, it's very difficult to move C players up to B or up to A unless they really want it. And you're going to invest a lot of time with them. But building on what you said, I've seen this so many times, Marcus. What a miss. I think what happens is people assume their A players got it covered. They don't need to worry about them. No, they need as much special love as anybody else. And in fact, if they are your A players, you ought to be giving them a whole lot of love. And I'm going to have to go check out your post. And I just talked to a sales VP about this recently who they admitted for maybe half of their last sales year, they just kept putting all this emphasis on trying to train people who were mediocre, yeah. ultimately coming to the conclusion that they needed to move them out of the business entirely. Meanwhile, they're losing sales, they're losing traction, they lost good people. Now they're getting back on track, but what a shame to have that happen. And that to me, I wonder often, how is it possible? So maybe that speaks to recruitment, right? It's not, it's you recruit the right people and, and then you, you need to onboard the right people. 
And I know you have a lot of experience in this area. So I'm going to flip the table and ask you the question. At what point should managers be saying to themselves, either I'm not doing my job helping them be successful and or we've got the wrong person. We need to move them out of the business and move them out fast. Okay, great question. 95 to 98% of management problems start in bad recruitment. It starts by looking at the wrong indicators. Most organizations and most HR departments tend to develop the job specification on three lag indicators, skills, experience, and historical results, all of which are backward looking. And they say that Bob may have been good, but we don't know whether she was lucky, whether she was carried, or she just happened to be in the right place at the right time, picked up the phone for that inbound lead and managed to land a bluebird in spite of how she sold. Then we also need to look at the key question, which is, what are the predictors of success? Well, things like habits. What people do repeatedly in the past, they are very likely to do repeatedly in the future. So do they have a good listening habit? Do they have good questioning habits where they ask tough, insightful, demanding, challenging, even uncomfortable questions and get the answers to the questions that they ask? Do they have a prospecting habit? Do they have a good organizational habit? These are things that make people successful in direct sales and in channel. Are they collaborative? What are their beliefs? What are their beliefs and their attitudes and their values? One of my favorite questions is, Bob, when is it okay to lie to a prospect? (laughs) Never. Precisely. But if they don't answer never immediately, that's an immediate red flag. And I want to make sure that they haven't been badly conditioned. But I want to make sure that as part of their value set, They never lie because the moment you get caught in a lie, then that person, they may forgive you, but they can never trust anything that comes out of your mouth again. And these are the people taking your brand out there. And cognitive abilities, your ability to learn, adapt, your resilience, your ability to bounce back, your ability to adapt to the current environment. These are all critical predictors of success. But most managers don't know how to interview for those things because they're interviewing as a chore instead of the single most important function that they have. Now, one of my clients came up with what is, frankly, the best phrase ever in recruitment. It even beats better no breath than bad breath in a sales position. (laughs) And it is this. Is he better than an empty chair? Now, I believe, building on your previous point, that it is our job to play favorites. If you read Marcus Buckingham's book, which is based on 19 years of research by the Gallup organization interviewing 500,000 of the best, most successful, most effective people in their specific disciplines, he says, play favorites. If you coach and develop your A players into A-plus players, instead of coming in at 120% of target, they'll come in at 150% of target, which is better than coaching a C player into a low B-minus and going from 50% to 62%. You're going to gain significantly more. And while it sounds harsh, I believe that it's a manager's responsibility to hire slow and fire fast. That's where things go horribly wrong because most managers recruit reactively instead of proactively, and they don't build a bench. And because what they're not doing is they're not listening to what's going on in the market. When they are recruiting, they recruit in a hurry and then they compromise. And that's where better no breath than bad breath comes in. Because if you hire the best people and you onboard them, coach them, train them, develop them to get the best out of them, 
then how many management problems do you really have? Most of those will come from your idiot senior management, where they're asking you to do stupid things, or your investors are asking you to do stupid things. So they're telling your salespeople that what you have to do is you have to get more dials in. You have to knock out more proposals, none of which actually you can change after the boat has hit the iceberg. Revenue, profit, all of those are lag indicators. They're not things that matter. Things like unique effective conversations. So daily unique effective conversations where no one from the team has spoken to anyone from that company for 12 or 18 months, where they get past the gatekeeper through to the decision maker. They contract with the decision maker to deliver a 30-second commercial, at the end of which the decision maker will either say, yes, we'll keep talking for two more minutes, or no, we won't, we'll end the call. The velocity of their pipeline. And again, this is where listening really comes into its own and where managers really need to listen for the truth instead of what they want to hear, which is basically activity versus meaningful action. And the third critical metric is making sure that the salespeople are prospecting constantly so that they end up with three to 500% of their quota moving from qualified to closable. Not that they have 300 to 500% of leads coming in at the top, but these are qualified where 70% of the questions that you need to have answered are moving to 100% of the answers and that they are in your target market, have a problem you can fix, you're dealing with a decision maker who's willing and able to make the decision, willing and able to invest the time, the money, the resource, and give you access, and is working towards a clearly defined and acceptable time frame. Now, most people would give that a weighting of 70 or 80%. I would give that a weighting of 10% in the funnel. And part of the problem is that managers don't really want to coach, they don't really want to train, they don't really want to recruit, and those are the central parts of their job. But most managers do what was done to them, so man hands on misery to man, and what happens is the top salesperson gets promoted, and they are the most undertrained people I've ever met in any organization, middle sales managers. They're the people who get thrown in at the deep end, and as a result, they haven't got a clue how to build a team, how to get the best out of their people, how to recruit. They just recruit in their own image, only weaker. Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense. I mean, I was even thinking back to my own experience where I resisted Marcus for a very long time being moved into management. I was very good as an individual contributor. I loved it, loved running my patch, my own business. And I kept saying, oh, let's get you into management. I kept saying, yeah, no, 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 no. One, because maybe a misguided perception of what that was. And I thought it was a babysitting job and that really wasn't my thing. When I began to appreciate that there was an opportunity to recruit and train and develop great people in the organization, something that I had a a lot of belief in. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I'm not going to name the company. When I did take the leap and when I did move into my first management position, I was a total failure in the first six months. Nobody gave me any training whatsoever. They taught me some of the HR stuff, but how to actually manage and lead people, I didn't have a clue. But what I did do, and this is where I think a lot of people don't take responsibility and be accountable for their own success. I went out and I got books and I learned and I invested in management classes and I, you know, and this was way back. And I invested in myself because I said, darn it, I want to be good at this, but 
I'm a classic example of somebody who was a, a sales performer who you could count on. I over exceeded quota constantly. And the next logical step they thought was, well, she's good there. We'll just put her in management. Nope. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of different skill sets. So you are so right about everything that you said there. And then also, I love that you brought up Marcus Buckingham because he's right as well. You've got to play some favorites. If you think about moving an A player to an A plus player, think about it. That A player is already super motivated. A little extra investment in them, they are going to move forward much more quickly. It's kind of weird. I saw this even with performance reviews. It always struck me as odd. Why did we focus on these competencies? HR would tell us, oh yeah, talk to them about their strengths, but they're really weak over here. So let's beat them up because they're no good in say accounting. I don't see the value in focusing on things or people who aren't doing things well. Why not hire the right people who have the right kind of potential? Does that not also get into managers? You're right. It is an afterthought. But how many managers just ask these silly questions that anybody can practice and be a great interviewer for, but they're not asking more of what I would call sort of the cognitive and behavioral questions that you talked about that really get to the heart of who is this individual and are they going to be a fit for us? Sell me this pen. That's my absolute favorite idiot question. I know it is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? But what I love is the question you posed to me, and I think it's really important to come back to for a moment, is you know, you said, when is it appropriate to lie to a prospect? Never. And what's disappointing to me, people are teaching little white lies, these little tricks. Oh, just pretend like you had a meeting set up and put that in your subject line of an email or to say, you know, I've been trying to reach you on the phone when we all know darn good and well, that isn't true. And somehow people have this impression that those little tricks are okay, but they aren't. Back to your earlier point, from that moment, when I see somebody who approaches me and I get as many cold calls as anybody else, well, that's not true. In bigger organizations, obviously, people get much, many more calls. But I do get those calls and I do get those emails. And when somebody starts with, I've been trying to reach you or I've called you and left you several messages and I know it's a blatant lie, I immediately say to myself, I don't care what you're selling or how badly I might need it. I would never do business with you. Because if that's how you start the relationship, how could I ever trust you with any of the big stuff? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things we teach our clients to do is just fess up and say, Bob, this is a cold call. Would you like to hang up? And I don't think I've ever had anyone hang up on me. No. Back to authenticity and being straightforward. Why is it so difficult for people to understand that you can just say, Marcus, you don't know me. I know that your business is probably struggling with this one problem. I'd like to talk with you about that if you have a minute. But I mean, let's be real. It's like they get a breathing body and they think they've got their 20 seconds. And so it's like, well, I'll just dump all this stuff on Marcus or I'll try to pretend like we somehow know each other no, you don't. You're a stranger. Just be okay with that. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I'd like to take the conversation slightly further in terms of what listening is and what it isn't. Sure. I know that you talk about listening being partly about hearing what's being said, but it's also about how it's being said. In my training session today, 
one of the things came out as they were doing role plays and one of them was being given feedback that he nurtured using the words, but he was closed in his body language. He was very tightly arms crossed and he was leaning back and very stiff. And so it felt incongruent. What are you teaching people using the ECHO tool in order to help them recognize that listening is not just not about the words? Well, that's a great question because as I said, it really starts with, it isn't just self-awareness. It's you've got to be willing to meet yourself where you are, if you will. And so in the scenario that you just described, Marcus, that, that's a person who's just going through the motions because someone told them they had to, and they're making it an attempt, but it's coming off false. And people will pick up on that, whether it's in person or on the phone, Absolutely. by the way. I find it somewhat hysterical that some salespeople will start a conversation with me and say, oh, I know your business is all about listening. And then they go on to demonstrate that they don't do that very well, <laughs> which is a little bit ironic. So I think what it is, is our profile is fantastic. It will help you identify strengths and areas of opportunity for growth and ways to adapt in conversation with other people if you want to. It ends up being a choice. You have to decide. Now, for some people, this is probably easier to make the choice when you're in sales. At some point, if you're not achieving your goals and you're asked to be moved on to another company or you're cycling through a couple different jobs and you're not getting where you need to be, you will either switch careers or you might finally wake up to the fact that you do need to look in the mirror and you do need to start with yourself. So this is Barb's personal feeling about it. You have to want to do things differently and you have to really believe that what you're doing as a salesperson or as a sales leader really makes a difference. I mean, what a great opportunity we have every single day to help people solve problems, improve their businesses, improve their lives. But once again, if it's just about you trying to get for you and making your quota, that insincerity comes through in all kinds of ways. I mean, you just can't fake it. People are not dumb. They can tell. Agreed. So let's take this into something really practical. Lots of salespeople list communication very high on their list of top skills. Yes. How do you dig for that in the interview process to make sure that listening intelligence is really something that's central to what they do, that they live it, they breathe it, and it's authentic? I know when I think about the people that I've interviewed through the years and I've been bringing people onto teams and even having gone through this process recently of interviewing some people to be inside sales reps for us, also interviewing companies who did that sort of work on an outsourced basis, I am listening for that authenticity. First of all, are they asking insightful questions about our company? Have they done a little bit of homework to figure out what we're all about and how they might bring value to the table. So when I think about practical, I'm going to be like you are when I ask certain questions about, well, how might you handle this situation? What did you do here? Tell me about how a typical sales call goes for you. And if I ask a question like, how does a typical sales call go for you? And they do, well, you know, I present our products and our features and I talk about the company history and I do this and I do that. 
you know, that says to me, eh, probably not going to be a good fit. Also, if they're asking good questions and even a, just a small number of them, but they're insightful and they get me talking about what's important to us and what's important to our business, then I'm saying to myself, yeah, that's a person who's really genuinely interested in focus on the other person, not themselves. I think about so many interviews and people are just coming in trying to make it all look pretty and give you a buttoned up package and all they're trying to do is sell themselves. And that just tells me a lot about how they might operate in a sales situation. So hopefully that gives a little more insight into it. I wish I could say that I had a perfect way of interviewing, but what I've done is I try to interview as I would a sales call. I'm looking for good culture fit. I'm looking for how much investment they put into learning about us before they talk to us. I'm listening for what kind of value. Have they thought about the kind of value that they could bring to the organization? Can they articulate that well? Those are some of the things I look for. What about you? If a salesperson at an interview is focused on what's in it for them, then that's demonstrative of how they're likely to sell. When I was in recruitment, one of the things I was always coaching my clients to do or my candidates to do is ask about the job and ask about the manager and ask about their targets and what they're trying to achieve and how you as a salesperson can help support their objectives in the same way that when you're selling, they don't really care about your ugly kid, your product. What they care about is their targets, their goals, their KPIs. They're worried about who's looking for them to fail. They're worried about the competition. If a salesperson goes to an interview and they aren't asking a load of good, tough, insightful, challenging, difficult questions that help the interviewer get an insight into what's really going on in their marketplace, then I don't think they qualify to go to the next stage. And if you are going for an interview, I think it's beholden on you to ask those kind of questions because at the end of the day, you're a personal services corporation selling your time and expertise for money. Whether you're on an employment contract or not in sales, it's your book of business. It's your pipeline. And the only way you are successful, Emerson's Law of Compensation kicks in here, to get more, give more. Now, that doesn't mean to be a doormat. It doesn't mean spend your life in free consulting. I think you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. I totally agree. Your credibility comes from the questions that you ask, not the information that you give. Right. And you know, a couple other things that I noted down that I also wanted to say about the interviewing piece, and it came up because... I was talking with a colleague about this just a a day ago. Sales is tough. We are going to face rejection. It's rewarding and it's tough. It can be hard work and we're going to face rejection and rejection can come even in the smallest things. So for example, super excited about my day yesterday. I was very much looking forward to several sales calls that had been scheduled for quite a while. And at the last minute, the people had to move the dates. That's going to happen. And I also, in the interview, I'm looking for how do people take care of themselves? How do they recover from that? Are they taking that stuff personally or do they just recognize, all right, well, you know what? I'm prepped for the call. So it's okay if it's Friday instead of it being on Tuesday. Got to keep going. So I look for how are people motivating themselves? And I will also tell you, Marcus, I'm looking for the people who understand that learners are earners. 
there is this trend I've been hearing about. I don't know if it's a generational thing, but people are out there bragging, oh, I don't need to read books. I don't need to focus on improving myself. Well, good luck with that if you expect to be successful in your career over the long term. So I'm also looking for those people who are always looking for ways to improve themselves. They're not waiting for their employers to give it all to them, right? They're reading books. They're listening to podcasts. They're doing the sorts of things that help them get better, better, better. Absolutely. I mean, if you want to become my client, you have to contract with me that you will put in one hour of study per day, minimum. And it's mandatory. If you want my coaching, you have to do your hour of study. If you don't do that, then why am I going to waste my time? Because if you're not committed to your own development, I can't want it more than you. Yes. Oh my gosh. So true. And you know, there are going to be some people saying an hour a day. It is about priorities. We all have the same 24 hours. I have made it a personal habit day in, day out. I learn something. I'm either reading, I am watching a webinar. I do register for webinars that I can't often, sometimes I can't attend live, but I guarantee on a Saturday morning with a cup of coffee, I'm watching, I'm listening, I'm learning. And some people have said, well, Barb, you've been selling for a long time. And I said, yes, and I can learn something new every day. And guess what? The world is changing. So something you said earlier really struck another chord with me. And that is People need to understand the world is so darn different than even five years ago. And now we've got artificial intelligence coming into it. And we need, and buyers have had it with the cheesy approaches and they, they don't want their time wasted. We've got to get better. So if I'm talking with somebody who wants to work with us and they're not willing and it's clear they're not spending time advancing their own skills through learning, then that kind of tells me that they're okay sort of sitting on the sidelines getting by. Certainly more has changed in the channel in the last two years than in the last 36 years. And the direct sales ecosystem, I think, is going to go through a massive upheaval because there is this awful statistic floating around the internet that 65% of the buying decision has already been made by the time prospective buyers invite a salesperson in. All that tells me is that your salespeople are terrible and they haven't been prospecting because they should have been in helping to identify those problems early. And they should have been helping the customers form their opinions in terms of the direction to diagnose those problems. And if anybody quotes that statistic to me and uses that as an excuse to hide behind, as far as I'm concerned, they're pretty much dead to me. I really appreciate that you brought that up because that has always bothered me. That first came from CEB, Corporate Executive Board, you know, they're now part of Gartner. But yes, people used that as an excuse. And what I was saying is, come on, that is an opportunity. If you can be the person who stands out and gets ahead of it and demonstrates to a buyer that you can help identify problems or you're thinking about their business or bringing insights to them they hadn't considered, that is how you stand apart. And people don't seem to understand that Sadly, you don't even have to do that much to be that much different, you know, that much more different than other people. So yeah, I'm right with you. That's a lazy excuse. Your ability to better understand your market and the problems that buyers are facing and your ability to then communicate that you really do have that understanding and that you have a way to help support them or help them, that's critical. But once again, this is not we people are 
learning. And even if they do go to the internet and they get some information about competitive challenges or some industry things happening, they sort of like repeat the information back, but they don't say, you know, Marcus, you're an expert in channel sales. And I was just reading about this new philosophy relative to channel selling. What are your thoughts on that? Would you mind spending a minute just talking with me about that? Now, salespeople listening to that, Marcus, say, yeah, but that's not a sales call. Yeah, I'm actually getting time with Marcus and then I'm going to make it about him and learn a little bit about more his perspective. Guess what? Now we've connected. Now we're going to naturally start to get to know each other. And if we could leave people listening to this podcast with that one thought is it's little things like that that turn into big sales opportunities. Absolutely. I have a view that 80% of direct salespeople who really, their job function should be described as order takers or if they're really awful negotiators. Yes. And those people will be replaced by the likes of Siri and Alexa over the next 10 years. Now, The people who will survive in direct sales are the ones who bring insight, who help to identify the problem that exists at a causal level, because most organizations don't really know what the problem is. I mean, how many times have you seen an RFP be issued where they clearly haven't got a clue? There are plenty of centers of dissatisfaction. And what they've identified are lots of symptoms, but they haven't identified the root cause. And as a result, they go to market and they come up with an RFP, which lots of bad order takers turn up and say, yeah, we can do that. And then they're a year or two away from being fired as a provider because it (laughs) doesn't deliver the result that it needs. Right. When really what your job was as the salesperson from the very beginning is not to respond to the RFP and think, woohoo, we have a sales opportunity. It would be to dig in a little deeper and, and find out, well, what led you to, you know, even put this together? What problem was happening in the organization that led you to think that you needed to do this? And that's a whole nother great conversation opportunity. When you're good at communicating, asking the right questions and listening, you have already done some homework. You have thought about the problems. This is where the learning comes in. So the learning isn't just about me personally. I'm always learning about my customers, I'm learning about their industries, the people that I would like to do business with, what's important to them. I get that by reading, by listening, interviews, podcasts, checking out what's being talked about or shared on social media. What are they writing about? All of that helps you to have the ability to identify not just the potential problems, but it helps you to ask questions And I'm not talking your discovery list of questions, which again, people feel like they're being interrogated with this list of silliness. Agreed. There is a topic that I really want to investigate because I know it's close to both of our hearts, which is the channel and channel sales. And in particular, the listening attributes and the collaborative attributes of great channel managers. In your experience, Why is it that there are so few outstanding channel managers and channel chiefs, but when they are outstanding, they are worth their weight many times over in gold? Well, I'm going to give you a point of view because it's based on my own experience. You, however, are the expert here, literally having written the book and worked with so many of your customers in this particular area. When you're working with a group of partners 
they're not really beholden to you. They don't report to you directly. You know, you can't hire and fire them. (laughs) Well, I guess technically you could hire them if you're choosing to bring them on as a partner. But the point is that you really have to get into the heart of what motivates them. And you have to wake up every day thinking about how do you help them build their business? Not just sell your product, but literally help them build their business, which means you need to understand what they do today. You need to really be clear. Who do they sell to? Where are their struggles? Can you help them with their territory planning, their lead generation strategies? What are the ways that you can help them build the business And then, oh, by the way, you want to show them how your product, your service, whatever it is, can not only integrate well into their business, you have to help them see how that drives revenue for them. You have to help make it easy. And so I think a lot of people just, they just think, oh, I'll be in a channel manager. Well, I just need to call up now and again and say, hey, how you doing? Are you going to place an order this month? And, And that's really not what it is about at all. So that job ends up being so tough because you really have to have some business acumen and be so willing to understand that their business doesn't rely on you necessarily. And you may be part of several different products or services they use as part of their business. So that's how I go about it. Couldn't agree more. I mean, in making channel sales work, we write specifically about this because it's so critical. I interviewed a chap called Kieran Cron, who won the Best Channel Manager in the World Award. Wow. HubSpot. And I was really skeptical before I interviewed him, but by God, he's brilliant. And he does exactly that. He spends 70 to 75% of his time coaching individual salespeople. The other 30%, he's in with the owners of those partners, helping them grow and develop their business, helping them achieve their goals and ambitions, helping them to identify problems in their business. Now, this is a guy who's only got seven years sales experience. And someone like that, you've got to develop people like that. But he didn't learn it. didn't pop out of his mother's womb able to do it. He had to learn it. And that was through great management and great leadership. And so in terms of predictive hiring, we've identified a number of critical competencies for both channel managers and channel chiefs. And What we've identified is that a channel manager is much closer in profile to a general manager and a channel chief is much closer to a chief executive than they are to a sales VP. And I think increasingly, as 90% of technology will be sold through partners and we're seeing more and more products being sold through the channel, then the channel will take have greater credence. But One of the challenges that we see is that senior executive management comes from direct sales very often. And so they kind of sideline the channel. They see it as a problem. They see it as, oh, this channel lock doesn't work. And as a result, what they're not doing is they're not asking themselves good questions. And I think if something isn't working, you have to look in the mirror first and you have to ask better questions. And the obvious question is, where are we failing them? What are we not doing that we should be doing? And more often than not, it's that we're not recruiting the right partners. When we do recruit the right partners, they're lumped in with all of the rest of the cattle who basically turn up and say, we'd love to have your logo on our website and produce nothing or just one deal. Then we're not training and onboarding them. And we're not training them how to sell. We're boring the 
poor people to death with product knowledge. So increasingly, what organizations have got to do is really focus on the right end of the problem. So I'm curious, in, in terms of wrapping up, if you had your golden ticket and you could go back and you could ask Barb, who wasn't necessarily the well-rounded human being she is today, uh, <laughs> what would you advise her as 23-year-old uh, either to do or not do? That is such a great question, and I'm going to give the answer I've given to other people who have asked it in interviews. I would tell myself to sit down, shut up. You're not the smartest person in the room. How about ask some of the right questions and listen to the answers? Now, I'm not just saying that because I'm working with an organization that's all about listening. I've said that many times before. As a young buck getting into sales, I thought I knew it all. And yes, I connected with people and people liked me well enough, but I also thought I was smarter. And I realized pretty soon that you have to be careful about that because people need to feel like you're connecting with them. And when you're making it all about you, it doesn't work out so well. So that's the same advice that anybody who ever asked me, I would say, Barb, sit down, be quiet, recognize that other people in the room have experience that you need to understand so you can do that by asking them, hey, what brought you to this point? How did you get where you are? Become really curious about other people and really learn about them. And I wish that I'd started that sooner and our journey is our journey. It is what it is. Fortunately, I learned fairly early on, Marcus. I will say though that until I did, I made a few missteps and I lost some pretty good deals because I really wasn't more self-aware. I can equate or I can identify at least 16.7 million pounds in commission that I left behind because of failing in that one area. Yeah, it happens. And I think we're seeing that now as well. Nothing like a bit of scar tissue to teach you some valuable lessons. <laughs> That's true. So, Bob, final question. Books that you're reading or read, podcasts that you follow and listen to that you'd urge other people to engage with? Well, I am a book junkie. In anticipation of the question, I just popped open my iPad library. I mean, my bookshelf is full of all kinds of books from the greats like Napoleon Hill and Dale Carnegie, and some of those are, are fantastic. But literally, I am reading Making Channel Sales Work, even though your book, even though I've had channel background and experience, getting back to what I said, I'm always looking to learn. I want to learn more about what's happening now, what's current what's coming, what should I be thinking about for the future? So that's the first thing. And then also you mentioned your mentor and turned me on to two other books that I'm just about to start, both from Mark Golston, one called Just Listen, the other, Talking to Crazy. So those are my three. But then behind that, I'm always, my next favorite is one I really have to share, even though it's a fourth book. It's by Paul Hellman, and I picked it up about a month and a half ago, and it's called You've Got Eight Seconds. And it is one of the best books that I've ever read about making your point and connecting with people quickly. So when you're leaving that voicemail, you don't have 30 seconds, you have eight. When you're writing the email, you don't have 30 seconds, you have eight. So I highly recommend that book. Fantastic. Bob, if you could give people contact details so that they can get in touch with you. Absolutely. They can connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm Barbara Giamonco. 
would love to have you visit us at echolistening.com. I still believe in the telephone as being great technology. Feel free to call me here in the United States in Atlanta at 404-647-4925 if you'd like to learn more about listening. And you can reach me at barb at echolistening.com. And thank you so much, Marcus. This has been a great conversation. And I also appreciate the opportunity to help continue to get my message out there that communication matters and first impressions matters and salespeople and managers can do better. Absolutely. Bob Diamanco, thank you so much. This has been a really insightful conversation. I hope that we can do this again soon. And this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you want to get in touch with me, contact me on LinkedIn or email me at m-c-a-u-c-h-i at sandler, S-A-N-D-L-E-R.com. Or you can call me on 07-515-937-221. I'm not quite as scary as I come across, I promise. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Happy selling.